was exciting to hear from Danny and Tania. Thank you, guys. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 12 as we get into God's Word this morning. Um, you know, Jesus was not afraid to dive right in uh, to a conflict with enemies. It never fazed him to have to do that. And his response is uh, to, to these enemies that he was dealing with here, we're going to talk about in just a second. He said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Um, Kent Hughes, a commentator, wrote about that phrase. He said that the statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Says a lot. I think we can all agree that that was one of the sayings that people know about Jesus. Um, So where we ended last week was in Mark 12, verse 12, that says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. And our section today starts with verse 13. You can look at verse 13 on, on, we're going to read the whole passage in just a bit, but it says, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And the word catch is used like the idea to trap a beast with a net. They wanted to trap Jesus and they wanted to destroy Jesus. That was their goal. In fact, in the parallel passage in Matthew 22, it says that they plotted how to entangle him in his words. Uh, recently, Miriam, uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary released uh, like 200, they do this every year, 250 new words in our vocabulary. One word was the word troll. Uh, it used to describe a character in Scandinavian literature. But now the verb means, and I quote, to antagonize others, social media, by deliberately posting inflammatory, irrelevant, or offensive comments or other disturbing content. So if the Pharisees and Herodians had had Facebook or Instagram, they would have been all over it trolling Jesus. But since they didn't, they didn't mind trying to trap him face to face with his own words. So let's read the passage, uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words, to Jesus, to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It is, right, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. 
So this is God's word for us. At the top of your outline, it says this, that the Pharisees and the Herodians were enemies with each other. Their mutual hatred for Jesus brought them together to oppose him, uh, who they saw as a threat. And if Jesus had said it was unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians would have accused him of being an enemy to the government. And if Jesus said it was lawful, all of the Jews would have been against him. Jesus displayed unbelievable wisdom in avoiding the trap they laid for him. He took the occasion to remind them what they owed to God. We owe the one who owns us. So the Luke version of this account in Luke chapter 20 refers to this particular group of Pharisees and Herodians as spies. Uh, the, the first century political situation that they were dealing with was kind of similar to today. It was a powder keg ready to go off. Um, you have on your outline some of the differences between these two groups. So the Herodians were secular, the Pharisees were spiritual. The Herodians were all about government, the Pharisees all about God. The Herodians were pro-Herod, the Pharisees were anti-Herod. The Herodians were pro-tax, Pharisees were anti-tax, and they both hated Jesus. And so that brings them together. The bottom line is that the Pharisees were ready to accuse Jesus of heresy, and the Herodians were ready to convict him of, of treason and arrest him. Either way, they wanted Jesus gone, both of them. Um, it's like it says in Psalm 2, uh, that the kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what they were doing. Uh, verse 14 begins, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. They called him a man of integrity, but they didn't believe it. <clears throat> Everything they said about Jesus was true. Look at how verse, verse 14 continues. You aren't swayed by others. You pay no attention to who they are. You teach the way of God. You teach the truth. But they wouldn't submit to, the, to God's will. Uh, it's true today that we can have good theology. We can say the right things about God and about Jesus. But if it doesn't change your life, do you know what Jesus says to you and to me if our lives don't change when we read the word of God? He says, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Jesus is very clear in John chapters 14 and 15. He says it over and again, if you love me, prove it by the way you live your life. Obey me if you love me. And then he takes at the end of verse 14 and 15, these, these political power players ask him for a, que a question that they don't think Jesus is going to be able to answer. Is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Uh, all they wanted to be able to do is to say, aha, did you hear what he said? That's fair, that's heresy, arrest him, throw him in jail. You know, taxes, uh, we think taxes are an issue here. Taxes were an issue in the first century. They had all kinds of taxes. Um, you know, uh, the, the, two, uh, the two states, any guesses on the two states that have the highest tax burden in the United States? If you guess New York and Hawaii, 
you would be correct. They're both over 12%. And this is an overall tax burden. The least, what would be the two least? They are, if you're thinking, um, and maybe you got it correct, Tennessee and Alaska. Um, interestingly enough, California ranks number 10, right ahead of Kansas number 11. Uh, being from Kansas, that was interesting. Uh, Kansas is number 11, but those are both around 9.5%. It's about what we pay here. So the Israelites during the time of Jesus did not have exorbitant taxes, uh, but they resisted them because the taxes were reminder of their submission to Rome. That's what the, the Jews hated about it. And so in New Testament times, they had a temple tax. They had an income tax. They had a business tax. They had a poll tax. Uh, the business tax was what Matthew collected. The, the poll tax is what took Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem uh, to pay their tax where Jesus was born. And if Jesus opposed the tax, he'd be in trouble with Rome. And if Jesus approved the tax, he'd be in trouble with the Jews. So they were really trying to corner him into a no-win situation. And it seems like he would either be the enemy of God or he'd be the enemy of the government. So the Herodians and the Pharisees didn't care how he'd answer. They were going to get him either way. They were just wanting to trap him and bait him. Um, and these enemies start out by flattering Jesus, but boy, does he flatten them. Uh, he sees right through their destructive and their horrible motives. And these enemies of Jesus were probably pretty proud of their question. On the face of it, it seems like a good question. But look at verse 15. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Again, looking at the same situation in Matthew and Luke, they talk about Jesus, it says Jesus knew their craftiness and their wickedness. All they wanted to, Jesus to do was to incriminate himself. So before they say anything, Jesus asks for the coin that they would use for paying that tax. And they had one. And I think there are a couple of reasons that this is interesting why Jesus would ask them for a coin. Number one, it showed Jesus didn't have one. Uh, that he was poor. And the second thing is that he wanted everyone to see that the leaders had coins and it didn't seem to bother them. So in verse 16, it's written, he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And the answer is obvious. And they respond right away. It's Caesar. But they realize the implications of what they're saying. <clears throat> and the tables, the, the tables have turned because now they need to answer Christ. And so verse 16 is when they say it's Caesar's. And then I love how Jesus drives home the point in verse 17. This amazing phrase. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now up until this point, <clears throat> the Jews had the view that the ruler had divine authority. Even the Jews believed that. They, they, they could not question anybody they believed. Even the kings would call themselves gods. Every king would say, I am a god. That was the way they saw themselves. So when Jesus spoke, this is the first time the idea of limited government ever came out of somebody's lips. Uh, the king did not have divine authority. You could question the king. 
So to give back in verse 17 is literally to return or to pay back what's, what, what's owed in full. And Caesar is due the denarius because he owns the denarius. He's the one that had it printed up. And he can ask for some of it back in taxes. And so I, I want to pause here and talk about our responsibilities, what our responsibilities are as Christians to the government. And I realize this is a big issue. Uh, and it's maybe a big issue now. But I think God's timing is always perfect. So talk about it. We've got it. You've got it on your outline in front of you. The first one is, I will live in subjection to the laws of the land, even if it's a pagan government. Romans 13, and I, <clears throat> we're not going to read all these verses in total. I'd like to, but just for time, I would really ask you to read these verses on your own when you get home. But just some of them, I'm going to hit some highlights of each of the verses, but it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities in Romans 13. But, but read these passages. And then in, in 1 Peter 2, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of the state or the officials as the ones he has appointed. The second thing is, if allowed, I will vote and engage responsibly in the political process to bring my Christian convictions into community life. Proverbs 14.34 says righteousness, in other words, moral and spiritual integrity and, and virtuous character exalts a nation. But sin disgraces, is a disgrace to any people. And so we need to think biblically about candidates who are running for office. We need to think biblically about issues that are important to us. That's, that's our responsibility as Christians. Third, I will pray for those who are in political leadership over me. But I am first a citizen of heaven and worship God alone. So in 1 Timothy, it says, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. And what does Paul say in Philippians? He says, we are citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship lies, number one. Yes, many are, uh, most here are Americans, not everyone. But we are all, as Christians, those in whom Christ lives, citizens of heaven. And for that, we can rejoice. Uh, number four, the next four, fourth bullet point. I recognize the government's right to tax, and I will pay my taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar? Caesar's. Jesus says it here. And then in Romans 13, he says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Pay to all who is owed them. Pay taxes, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed and revenue to whom revenue is owed. Pretty clear. William Barclay says it like this in his commentary on Mark. He says, no man can honorably receive all the benefits which living in a state confer upon him and then opt out of all the responsibilities of citizenship. Paying taxes. Although we don't like it, it's part of it. The fifth bullet point, I should not obey the government when it, command, when it commands me to do what the Bible forbids, including to act against my conscience. So Romans 14 says you're sinning if you go ahead and do what, what you think you should not do, eat meat in that, in that situation, for you're not following your convictions. 
And then in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. So a couple of examples that come to my mind are preaching the gospel. Uh, Even if the government says we're not to preach the gospel, we're to preach the gospel. We don't change that. And then I think also the the other one that came to my mind right away is, is, is working against unjust laws like abortion. Uh, because I I believe in the Bible, I think is very clear that abortion is murder. And so we do everything we can to work against abortion. We support Silent Voices, which is started by one of our members, uh, Sharon Pierce. Her mom is Kay and works there as well. But we, we do what we can to fight against injustices. And we can use the legal system here to fight the legal system. That's part of what it means to, to live in a, a republic, a democracy like we do. And then finally, my ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So our Lord says we must give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Are you doing that? Are you honest in paying your taxes? That's a call for every American, but especially as a Christian. And so... Then what, Jesus doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there. That would have been pretty amazing. But he continues, and give back to God what is God's. So even more importantly, are we giving God the things that are rightfully his? What are those things that are rightfully his? What are our responsibilities to God? We have responsibilities as citizens of of the earth and as, as citizens that are responsible for heaven. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. We, we love God and we, we give him to what is, what, what's his, but we live in this country and we give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. So look on the front of your worship folder. On the front of your worship folder, I, I would say number one as Christians, we need to be committed to the great commandment and the great commission. We've taken those two verses or those two little sections, most of them are they're both multiple verses, and we've summarized them in five words that summarize the great commandment and the great commission. And you've got them in front of you. Worship, ministry, fellowship, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. So that's, that's part of what we need to fulfill. I, I think though a great summary of that and a great summary of what we've said already is, is in 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's what 1 Peter 2.17 says. So I want to break this down just a little bit here in the next few minutes. Though there are so many issues that divide us right now as a country. I think we would all agree with that. And it is possible, and this is on your outline, to honor each other even when we disagree. And let me say here, that includes, like we've already alluded to, what's posted on, so what we post on social media. Uh, don't leave your relationship with Jesus behind when you log on to Facebook or Instagram or whatever else, whatever uh, uh, other social media you're on. In fact, go the other way. You can leverage it to serve the Lord. You can leverage it to encourage people. You can leverage it to share Jesus with people. You don't cause discord. You don't tear others down. And so to honor is to esteem someone, to prize someone. To, to treat them with distinction. And this can be done by the way we talk to someone, by seeking to understand them, by asking questions to learn more, by overlooking mistakes, by forgiving 
We need to learn to forgive. We have to forgive. It's, it's a commandment. And do you know it's possible <clears throat> to honor each other even when we disagree? Uh, to honor someone is to fix a high value I mean, by esteeming them or prizing them. To honor is to, is to treat with distinction. To, to, to dishonor is to treat someone like dirt. We don't do that. Kathy was talking to a friend and they were having a disagreement and, and Kathy stopped and said, you know, we disagree about this issue, but I love you way more. That's not going to get in between us. The next exhortation is to love the brotherhood. We have an obligation to especially love our brothers and sisters in Christ. When I, I was a new Christian and I was invited to, a, by a friend of mine who was a Christian to go to a thing called BASIC. I had no idea what it was, but I, I learned that BASIC stood for Brothers and Sisters in Christ. And we went and we worshiped God and we, we prayed together. And <clears throat> isn't that true? Because that is BASIC to being a family member of, of, of God's family. That's what we do. We gather and we worship together. We, we pray, we sing. We're part of a family. If you're not part of this family and want to be part of the family, join me this afternoon for the membership class at two o'clock and you can be part of our family. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6. He says, do good to all, all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. And so, you know, our love for Christians is a test of, of our faith. It says it in 1 John 4. It's a commandment that you, those who love God must love their fellow believers. And so that means we love them even if we don't feel like it. That means we love it even if we have different styles of this or that. Or uh, we differ on even political issues. Or someone's way older or way younger. We're part of the same family. And the word love there, and you've got this on your outline, is the word agape in 1 John 4. And that's like God's love for us. Agape love is not I will love you if you do this or you do that. It's not I love you because you can do this for me or you're beautiful or whatever. It's I will love you in spite of, in spite of you injuring me, sinning against me, whatever it might be. Agape love is an act of obedience and we're commanded to love that way. And you might ask, well, how can I love someone if I don't feel it? You know what I've learned <clears throat> is that feelings follow action. And so if you don't love someone, you act like you do. And before you know it, you will feel the love. And even if you don't feel it, you still love them because we're commanded to do so. We have a great example among the disciples. You know, there were disciples that were on Simon the Zealot on one side, hated Rome, wanted to overthrow Rome. And on the other side, you have Matthew, a tax collector, who, who collected taxes for Rome. Those guys would have been at each other's throats, but they were on the same team. They worked together for the kingdom of God. And then Peter says to fear God. <clears throat> And there's an increase in the intensity here. Honor all the people. Love our brothers and sisters. Fear God. And again, it's a healthy fear. Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so a healthy fear will cause us to live a life of obedience to God. You know, this is the eternal perspective that Martin Luther had. 
when at the beginning of the Reformation, when, when he was being pressured like crazy by the religious power of the day, he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. That's, that gave him the strength to be able to do that because he feared God. And then next is to honor the emperor. You know, uh, you might complain or you might think of, here's somebody in another country and what a horrible leader they had. Nobody compares to Nero, who was the emperor at the time of the New Testament when this was written. And I looked up an article on Nero. I just want to read the first two sentences of it. It said, after 2,000 years, most people still recognize the name Nero, emperor of Rome. He is remembered as a monster and a sadist with a chilling list of crimes to his name, from burning down his own capital city to sleeping with his mother and murdering many of his close relatives. Can you imagine how he treated his enemies if he did that to his family? Uh, So back to Mark 12, 17, that little word and, and to God the things that are God. So we have a twofold debt made up of responsibilities between us and the government and responsibilities between us and God. The coin that Jesus had bore the mark of Caesar. So how do we know who or what belongs to God? You have this on your outline. Well, what bears his image? We all do. Genesis 126 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our own image and our likeness. Let us, that's the Trinity. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make man in our image and in our likeness. It's not a physical likeness he's talking about, but a spiritual personality, a moral likeness. That's how we're like God. And we're made in God's image. We're created for him and for his purposes. Um, R.C. Sproul, excuse me, commenting on these verses And then you've got the quote on your outline. And look at the very end of it. God owns us. He has the supreme right to claim our lives as his own. So then we're to render to God the things that are God's. Including, and here it is, our lives, our liberty, our possessions, and our affections. And all I have, I'm God's. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. We all belong to God. And so think of it this way. And again, it's on your outline. Because God's image is stamped on on us, we are his currency. And that means that everything we have is his. I was talking to someone recently and they said, you know, Kenny, one of the things I've learned at your church is the privilege it is to be able to give 10%. And why 10%? You know, the New Testament doesn't talk about the tithe. It says give to the needs of the saints. And the needs of the saints are way beyond a tithe. So a tithe is a great place to start. And then, so uh, this is for all of us. If, if, if you're, a, I, I think what they walked away, look at the last phrase there, and they all left and went away because they were amazed at his teaching. They were astonished at him. They marveled at Jesus. And so if, if you're amazed at Jesus, if you, if, if you accept what he's done for you, then you believe and you receive him. And this is a call to a profound commitment to God. 
and loving him with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. There's a lot there. I hope you'll go back and spend some time reading all these verses. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us. Uh, Teach us to live like those who follow you. Help us to do what we've learned to impact the way that our lives are lived between Sundays, in our homes, at our work with our friends. To, to be able to enter in the political process responsibly and be faithful to pray for our political leaders, whether we agree with them or not, to be honest in our financial dealings, to always give back to you first what you deserve. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here uh, this morning. And I, I uh, remember the signups that are out on the for the women and for the Thanksgiving meal. Um, And now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Please introduce yourself to someone you're sitting next to.